Our sermon text this morning is selected verses from Job chapters 2 through 5. Uh, we'll look at Job chapter 2 beginning in verse 11 through chapter 3 verse 4. Then we'll look at chapter 3 verses 20 to 26. Then chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 verses 12 through 17. And then chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 and 17 through 27. Job chapter 2 verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let that day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Now chapter 3, verse 20, Job's words. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Now verse 12 of chapter 4. Eliphaz's words. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And now, chapter 5, continuing with Eliphaz's words, verse 7 of chapter 5. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. As for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. And now, verse 17, chapter 5, continuing with Eliphaz's words. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death. And in war, from the power of the sword, you shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, 
and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true here, and know it for your good. This is God's word. Even though Eliphaz is not correct in everything he says. And God will later rebuke him and the other friends for being, as Job will later call them, miserable comforters. But this is God's word in that God has preserved for us what these men said so long ago. God has preserved it for us in order to instruct us because we are instructed even by way of how Job's friends got it wrong. We're taking Job like a play. Each act contains scenes that when taken together tell an overall story. Job's is a faith story, a faith story that involves personal suffering. The faith story Job tells is of a person continuing to trust God when every benefit for doing so is stripped away. When there is uh, nothing being gained except troubles of various kinds, troubles God has not kept us from, even troubles that come from having God's name on us. Just looking at the text here as uh, we have it, it's, it's interesting that Job says in chapter 3, verse 23, what he does about being hedged in. Interesting because if we go back Last week's text, chapter 1, when Satan is having his dialogue with God and God says, have you considered Job? And Satan basically says, you've put a hedge around Job. He uses that word, hedge, chapter 1, verse 10. And now in chapter 3, verse 23, when Job begins his lament, it's like it feels to Job he's been thrown into that hedge headlong. And its branches have deeply gashed his spirit. What is going on? Eliphaz, this first friend of Job's to speak, and most of the book, it's 42 chapters, chapters 3 to 37, is Job and his friends in dialogue. Eliphaz is right about Job uh, when he says, uh, or he's right when he says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Chapter 5, verse 7, I read that. He's right about that in that trouble finds us all. Man is born to trouble. Trouble finds us all sooner or later. Each of us, sooner or later, something you don't like intrudes on your life. Something comes you don't want. Some troubles merely intrude. Some troubles invade and they take over. Job was overtaken. By what the text calls, chapter 2, verse 11, the evil that came upon him. But in being overtaken, he wasn't taken over. That's the drama in Job. Now, we saw it last week in chapter 1, verse 20. We saw that in response to his troubles, Job rose and he tore his robe, which is a, a symbolic in that culture of great grief, Chapter 1, verse 20, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. Worship means response to God. Overtaken by troubles, 
but not taken over. Kate Bowler, in her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, she says here, and Kate Bowler is a cancer survivor as well as a, a seminary professor, she says, life is beautiful and life is hard. Here's uh, her full quotation. I cannot reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, except I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of the cancer clinic where I am, her arms wrapped around the, the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the way he looks down at her sheepishly. After a minute, he laughs. He is a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow, and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. Both together. You know, when I announced that we would take a little time in Job, you already knew, even if you just had a you know, passing familiarity with this Old Testament book, you already knew that Job's friends... Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and then there's going to be a, another that's going to, to join them later on named uh, Elihu. You knew that uh, these friends would add to Job's pain. Now not at first they don't. In fact the best thing these friends did is show up and be silent. Chapter 2 verse 13 and they sat with him on the ground, the last verse in chapter 2, seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. At, at first, the friends just sit with him in his personal devastation. They don't try to explain it. No, uh, here's what you need to do now. No platitudes, no philosophical word crunching. They sit and they mourn with him. They participate in the mourning. They put dust on themselves. They tear their own robes. They share in his grief. And that's the best thing they did. Job's friends are never better in this book than when they are quiet. <laughs> There's a time to speak into great suffering. There's a time to speak to people in great suffering. But it is usually not when the grief is fresh. See, we tend to feel the need to fill silences with words because we're uncomfortable with silence. We think silence is awkward. And by silence, I don't mean saying nothing in the, in the wooden sense of no words at all. But most of the time when grief is still fresh for someone, don't say much more other than, I'm sorry. Or, I love you. Or I, I sure loved him. I sure loved her. They brightened my life. Or I'm, I'm for you, whatever you need. Don't say much more than that when the grief is fresh. These guys, to their credit, they, they waited for Job to start talking. But when he did, to their discredit, they each in turn moved to shut him up. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. 
Eliphaz believes God is punishing Job. And so Job needs to uh, figure out why. This is, in essence, his first exchange with Job in these chapters. Uh, He believes that God is punishing Job, and what Job must do is go to God and learn what he did wrong, why all these troubles have come. And to that, Job says, my friend, all, all, I, all I did wrong was be born. <laughs> and now I wish like everything I hadn't been. Before he uh, hears from Eliphaz, he says it in uh, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Look again at that. Chapter 3, verse 20. Why, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not? And please don't don't read that as Job being suicidal. We tread lightly on this subject, but despairing of life and wanting to end one's life is not the same thing. Job's conviction of, of life is that everything is given to him by God, start to finish. That's what he said in the text we looked at last week, chapter 1, verse 21. When he says, uh, naked I I came from my mother's womb and and naked uh, I I shall return. I I came into the world having nothing and and I will go out of the world not being able to take it with me. We don't determine our birth date. We don't determine our our death date. Job's not going to kill himself. That's not what he's talking about at the end of chapter 3 there. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 3, he's not talking about killing himself. That was incompatible with his worship. Particularly in the Old Testament context, to live is to worship. Uh, There's places in the Psalms where, God, if you let me die, well, then that takes away some of your praise because I'm not here to praise you anymore. But Job has been worshiping God with his life. Through his life, worship being a response we make to God, come what may. And Job is still worshiping, even though everything is in tatters. And so we saw again last week, uh, Job's wife says to him, uh, in the the grief and and bitterness of, of, of her spirit, she says, just curse God and die. And she wasn't saying to Job, uh, kill yourself. She's saying, give God a reason to kill you. Curse him. But what do we see? Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, Job cursed the day of his birth. He's in utter despair. Life was so beautiful, and now it is so hard. I wish I'd never been born to experience this. And if I die, he goes on in chapter 3, if I die because of this grief I feel, then I, I welcome it. But then chapters 4 and 5, this is where Eliphaz thinks he's got to counter it. Because uh, for Eliphaz, it's, oh, no, 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 Job, no. You would not welcome death because, see, you're, you're in sin. I mean, if you die in your sin, don't you see the problem of that, Job? You've got to figure out what you need to repent of so that, you know, should God take your life next... You won't die in your sin. You're you're being punished. That's what this is about. 
And thus begins, with Eliphaz's perspective, a painful, protracted discussion as each friend in turn picks at Job's scabs. I want to give us two takeaways this morning. Two takeaways that have to do with the difference between being overtaken by suffering and being taken over by suffering. There is a difference. Suffering will overtake us all, but does it have to take us over? That's the difference we want to explore. Those are two items that will move this, these texts through. So first, being overtaken by suffering. Eliphaz believes all this PTSD he's hearing from Job is consequences finally catching up. Yes, Job can grieve and, and, and be frustrated, and yet he's, he's going to have to deal with, with what got him into this trouble. This is Eliphaz's perspective. I, I call these friends the COVID crew. <laughs> In that, because as it turns out, you don't want their assumptions infecting yours. Not that they're wrong at every single turn. But when you uh, back out of the garage in the wrong direction, it doesn't really matter that you get certain turns right from there when you're going the wrong way. And they are. And again, Job will later call them miserable comforters. So they're his COVID crew, these friends. You don't want their assumptions about where suffering comes from, what causes suffering. Uh, you don't want that infecting your assumptions. And also a COVID crew because though they cannot point specifically to anything Job did wrong, they are nonetheless convinced that Job only appeared righteous. He was really in sin, they think, but, you know, asymptomatic, which we... We all know so much more about now than we wanted to. He had to be infected. This is their perspective. And they'll each in turn rehearse why they think so and, and, and continue to crunch the words philosophically. And, and they all think he's in some sin. And now Job, you know, has been quarantined in the circumstances, in the, in the consequences. God has, has put him in the consequences justly for something hidden. Eliphaz approaches sin as a binary and this still happens he comes at sin as a duality as an either or we're still like this we still have his perspective among us uh, in his view you're either in sin or you're not you're either clean or you're dirty you're either doing life God's way and being blessed or you're not and Job doesn't have that binary view of, of sin because Job knew to be born into this world is to be born into a reality we'll all suffer the impact of because of sin, because sin is the crack in everything. Job knows that death is already baked into living. Where do we see this? Look at the last two verses in, in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. The thing that I know is possible because, not because I did something wrong, but because the world has fallen. It's a place of death. 
3, 25, for the thing that I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. What is he saying? He's saying, I haven't lived in fear of God punishing me someday. I haven't lived in fear of knowing that someday I'm going to get what my sins deserve. Job wasn't living like that. Job says, I I have feared, as we all do, the harsher realities of life and living that I've seen happen to other people, my contemporaries. I've I've seen people go through loss. I've I've seen people go through reversals and setbacks. and, And I feared that for myself, sure. In fact, we didn't even look at this, but the very beginning of the book of Job, Job chapter 1, just for a moment, kind of a little bit of a, a, of a, a little trail here, but when it talks in the very first uh, section of Job, Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, again, we didn't look at this last week, but one of the uh, ways that Job shows his righteousness is that his sons and daughters are, are constantly feasting and, and, and having a great time. And Job, in the morning after their feast, goes and offers sacrifices for them because he's concerned. What a conscientious father. He's concerned that, you know, maybe my children blew it with God. And so I'm going to offer these, you know, these sacrifices so that, so that things will be okay in the, in the way that things worked back then. What a, what a guy this guy is. Job knows that death is already baked into living. And so when he says at the end of verse, uh, or at the end of chapter 3, what he does, he, he's saying, I've been overtaken. I'm not being punished. I've been overtaken by harsh realities. I've, I've always known her there. And I, and I haven't wanted This is a world in which you can lose a child to death, to addiction. This is a world in which you can experience severe financial setbacks, plural. This is a world in which you can get deathly sick. The Bible is honest about this. Jesus himself said, as he often spoke in pictures, it rains on the righteous and unrighteous both. Job feels thrown into these hedges. Satan says, chapter 1, you put a hedge around him. God, of course, he trusts and, and obeys you. Look at all this good stuff you've done in his life. And then chapter 3, Job says, I'm, I'm being hedged in. I'm being thrown into these hedges headlong. And besides all that, there's this downpour of troubles. And you know, God does protect us. He does more often than we know he does. I mean, you get in an accident and you think, wow, why didn't God prevent me from having the accident? And, and what you don't realize is there's a hundred accidents he's prevented. You say, well, why did he make this? This is, this is the mystery. But God protects us more often than we know he does. But, but think this out with me for a moment. Just, let's just think it out. What would it be like to never know troubles in this world? In this world as it is. Someday a world is coming. We talked about it in Revelation. In which trouble is no more. But what would it be like to never know troubles in this world? Well some of the, 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 what does the scriptures teach us? Some of the deep tissue character qualities would not develop in us. 
Look at uh, Romans 5, for instance. And we know that suffering builds uh, perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. It goes through a whole litany of, of, of deep tissue character qualities. We also know that, that communities don't really bond without some shared suffering, some trouble that you mutually go through. That wouldn't develop either. Or think about it like this. What if what we offered the world as we proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ come into the world to save people from every nation, tribe, tongue, what if what we offered the world in gospel proclamation is if you believe in Jesus, you get this protective shield. You get this bubble, this encasement around you that keeps any and all troubles away from Christians. Well, you know, sign me up. Who wouldn't want to be a Christian? Well, I, I'm sure there's still some who wouldn't want to be, of course. But you see the point. It, it if believing in Christ, if following him paid off in no more pain, no more pressures, no problems, a lot more people would want to get in on that. You know the children's story where the wild things are? Maurice Sendak's uh, wonderful little story, where the wild things are. It's about Max, an adventuresome boy who feels neglected by his mother and his sister. And so he escapes into a world of big hairy monsters, the wild things. And they threaten to devour him when they first meet him. He and their world. And, and they're going to eat him as monsters do. Except Max is able to convince them he has magical powers. So the monsters make Max their king. What the wild things actually believe is that Max has come into their world to abolish their suffering. They believe that he's there to establish peace and happiness. The monsters want that, though they are monsters. Are you hearing the human parallel? Are you hearing the human parable in this story? The things you can learn from children's books. The wild things ask Max to use his powers to keep out all the sadness. And Max, inventive child that he is, quick on his feet, tells the monsters, I have a sadness shield and it's big enough for us all. Job and his friends wrestle through a question that underlies everything they're considering. Does righteousness before God which we know this side of the cross is given to us by Jesus, who is the true and greater Job. Does righteousness before God entitle the bearer to some kind of a sadness shield? Some kind of protection from suffering and pain ever overtaking us? Job's story says no, it doesn't. But Jesus' story actually says the same thing. Through no fault of their own, either one, Job, Jesus, suffering troubles of all kinds overtook them, each one, and will overtake us. We're not exempt. 
And here's where we need to move into our second consideration, our second takeaway, because troubles and the suffering they cause does not mean being overtaken by troubles does not mean we have to be taken over by them. The laments that Job offers up here and in these chapters that follow, his lament in chapter 3, his first one, and he's going to have these subsequent laments along the way responding to what the friends say, calling out to God, crying out to God, asking the why question over and over. He will ask that question. The laments that Job offers It's grief finding its voice, which eventually has to happen. Lament is uh, hopelessness, refusing to give up hope. These are some operational understandings of lament that we work with here. Grief finding its voice, hopelessness, refusing to give up hope. But I'll tell you this. I know of no better way to give up hope when you're suffering than to think, I guess I deserve this. I guess I'm being punished. What happens when you go there, and it's understandable that we do, we process all kinds of emotions, and we can feel like this in some forms of suffering that are worse than than others. Everything's not relative where suffering is concerned. But if you go there, if you start to think, I deserve this, I'm being punished for something, almost assuredly, you will be taken over by the suffering. And to be taken over by it is to lose your bearings. To think like Eliphaz does, that whomever suffering overtakes must deserve it for punishment, that thinking actually causes you to be taken over by the suffering. You'll lose your gospel bearings if you think this way like Eliphaz, because the gospel preaches us a a message of no condemnation in Christ. No punishment is the point. That means God holds nothing against us. It means he's not mad at us. It's a subtitle of one of my favorite Steve Brown books, uh, his book called Three Free Sins, the subtitle is God's Not Mad at You. And Steve is a PCA Presbyterian. They're the serious conservatives. God's not mad at you. Do you want to be taken over by your suffering? I'm speaking now specifically to followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do Do you, as a follower of Christ, people in Christ, do you want to be taken over by your suffering? Just think, God is punishing me. Preach to yourself the anti-gospel. Or listen to some Pharisee. There's still plenty around, happy to preach it to you. Those who love to hold the judgment of God over people. You say, yeah, but you know, what about, what about discipline? I mean, does, I've understood that God disciplines. Isn't Eliphaz right that God has the option of discipline? Well, sure, that's, that's right. In fact, later in the New Testament, the book uh, written to the Hebrews in the New Testament, it says God disciplines those he loves. But we tend to think of discipline 
as corrective only, it's also training. Discipline is ongoing training in in some regimen. And while you would never seek suffering and pain as a trainer, as part of building us up in Christ, God does use trouble. He does use suffering in our lives. Suffering of all kinds, in a variety of ways he uses this. You don't have to like it. You do have to learn from it. You have to grow. But it's still not punishment. Because punishment is condemnation. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Punishment is what Jesus took on your behalf. I said it last week, I'll say it again now. We have it better than Job did living this side of the cross. We've got to keep this in view. We've been redeemed from the penalty of our sin, which is God's punishment against us. But our redemption also includes being freed from thinking like Eliphaz thought and resorting to the fixes that kind of thinking creates. Just confess whatever it is you've done to deserve this pain and God will lift it and bless you again, just like that. That's the summary of Eliphaz in chapter 5. That's what he brings to the circle. And again, you know, he's not wrong when he invokes his little axiom. Chapter 5, verse 7, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But then in the next breath, chapter 5, verse 8, as for me, I would seek God. And to God, I would commit my cause. He assumes Job needs to find out why God has sent this suffering to overtake him because it's evident to the friends Job's being punished. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. You need to deal with whatever you've done wrong so that happy days are here again. That, that, that's how he finishes out his statements in chapter 5. And how does he know this? (laughs) Eliphaz said in chapter 4, it's because it was spiritually revealed to him. Love the little experience he had, the spirit gliding past his face. Chapter 4, verse 15. A form was before my eyes. Chapter 4, verse 16. There was silence and I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? But, you know... Eliphaz must be because he's not suffering. I mean, if that's what you think, then then suffering becomes the own evidence that you're not right with God. (laughs) And it can't be that. But to these guys, the friends of Job, it was. Eliphaz, lucky for him, he has a sadness shield. Where did he find that? How did Maurice Sendak get all the way back into that period of time? Eliphaz has something big enough for all his friends to get behind, except for this one friend, Job. Because Job really screwed things up for himself. Job had to have done it wrong somewhere. And now God is giving him what he had coming. Can we, are, we are so too easygoing in our condemnation of others. 
especially the people you think deserve it. Man, when I get around a Christian who's free with dropping little hell bombs on people, that's somebody that, yeah, they're aggravating and they irritate me, but, but that's somebody I want to discover the overwhelming grace of God. When I get around a Christian that's full of resentment and bitterness toward this group of people they can't stand and they've, they've justified their hatred of this group over here and this particular person, and et cetera, and so on, these are people who are missing the grace of God. And I'm, and I'm among them. I recognize them by association. Because <laughs> I have to keep coming back to the grace of God myself. I have to keep having the, the porcupine needles that I go hugging. Uh, quills pulled out of me. And the grace of God to me does that for me. We're too easy going in our condemnation of others, but... but a lot of us are also too easygoing in our condemnation of ourselves. Some of us are full of self-loathing, self-hatred. You really never let the grace of God wash over you. You've never bathed in it. You've never soaked in it. You know, we do a sin, you know. This is how evangelicals typically think about sin. It's something I select. I go into the place I'm not supposed to be and I take this off the shelf and indulge it and then I put it back and try to act like I've never been there. And You know, it, with all kinds of things. We, we think of sin as this little shop I go into and I, I shouldn't be there and I do things I shouldn't do and then, oh, I'm sorry about it and I go out and we do a sin. We think of sin as binary. I'm in it or I'm not in it. And it's not that everything's relative when it comes to, to sin. I mean, some sins you haven't done and will not do. Thank God. But sin is our nature. It's in us. And we get taken over by guilt and by shame and by blame and resentment, which only compounds the suffering you're going through if you are, because now you think, I deserve this. God is punishing me, and he should. There is no quicker way to get taken over by suffering than to think, I guess I deserve this. I guess I'm being punished. Because when you do that, what are you doing? You're bypassing the gospel. You're bypassing God is for us. You're bypassing Emmanuel, which means God with us, another name for Jesus. We take that line from Amazing Grace. Oh, we all love to sing Amazing Grace, don't we? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, that saved a wretch like me, and we put wretch in all caps, and we put saved, we keep it small letters. We're hard on others. We're hard on ourselves. We're both. Here is Job suffering. Him of all people. Someone God could commend to Satan. I told you last week that in Ezekiel 14, there's a reference to, I wouldn't save this city if Job was one of the people who stood up for it. 
Job would be saved, but not the city. Wow. (laughs) Wow. How could it be that Job would suffer and Job, for his part, will ask and ask because he knows he did nothing wrong. And besides that, Job has experienced what he's experienced defies any sense of proportional judgment. I mean, it's like sentencing a man guilty of loitering to life in prison. But Job's not being punished. His friends will think so. He's not even being disciplined in the sense of correction. So what is going on? He is being trained. And so are we at his expense. And you can go off and fuss at God about that if you like. This is not fair, God. You can do that. But why is this story in our Bible if not to show us the possibility of someone losing everything and still clinging to God? We do not trust and obey God for blessings so that he keeps me happy and safe and healthy and full. We trust and obey God for Jesus because we've been blessed in him with every spiritual blessing. Job will say it over in chapter 13. We'll eventually uh, get there, but we'll invoke it a lot as we go through. Chapter 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, I will put my hope in him, and yet I will argue to his face and get no answer. No reason why is ever given to Job. Gosh, how we think, if if I could just know why. We assume if we could know why, we'd be okay with why. I'd at least know the reason. You think Job would have been okay with the why if he knew? You mean to tell me, God, you're trying to prove something to Satan at, at, at this cost to me? I don't think he would like to know the why. And if that's where the Bible left it, then we would have cause for despair. But what if God later subjects himself to the same kinds of agonies that Job experiences? That's where the Bible takes us. You can get there from Job. That when the time came, the person of God, God the Son, would himself suffer his own punishment against sin of every kind. Unrighteous sin, self-righteous sin, he paid for it all. His own wrath against sin, he stood in the way of. He absorbed on our behalf as our substitute. If Job didn't deserve to suffer, and we know he didn't, how much less Jesus I mean, if Satan knew God could commend Job to him because of how Job worshipped God, though Job was himself a fallen human being drawn to sin, which is what Satan gambled on, let me add him and he'll commit the sin of unbelief. How much more commendable did Satan know the Son of God to be in whom there was no fault at all? Listen, last word. 
Though a thousand Eliphazes make their assumptions, and though a thousand Satans accuse us, Jesus Christ took your punishment and mine upon himself. In our place. So there is no need. If the gospel is true, there is no need for God to punish you. And that is your heir when you're being overtaken by sufferings that smother you, even to despairing of life. Yes, there are some griefs that are that great. But even there we find the Savior of all has gone before us. And if he has, and if he's God, then we don't have to be taken over by what we find overtaking us. Would you pray with me? Father, how we are grateful that you hold and sustain our lives. Many of us who've experienced a variety of troubles, we don't have a an answer as to why. But Lord, eventually you turn us back to yourself and to your goodness to us in Christ. And we are grateful that you have redeemed us, not just from the penalty, the punishment of our, of our sins, our unrighteous sins, our self-righteous sins, but you've also freed us from drawing these linear lines and connecting these dots and making things too simple. There's a complexity to this story of Job that I don't pretend to understand. But what I think we're supposed to see is that when every benefit, every self-interested token is stripped away from us, from being associated with Christ, being in his community, and it's just you left, that that's enough. And Lord, none of us want for that to be put to the test. None of us want to be called or sent into that arena in which that's what we have to learn. And thankfully, in your grace, we don't have to go there. But Lord, would you be drawing us to yourself and strengthening us in you, in your grace and love to us, your mercies new every morning, such that if the bottom fell out today, if it fell out tomorrow, that we do not doubt that our Redeemer lives and that we will see him take his stand on the earth. Thank you for grace and goodness to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for keeping the answer why away from us for now. Thank you for all the ways that you have shown us you're for us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.